This is an ABC podcast. It's been a story that's sort of captured people's imaginations. It's this weird thing of this backpack that got buried in a glacier. So over 24 years, it slowly made its way down the mountain. They found a broken camera in it and a roll of film. It felt discombobulating to see these pictures come out 24 years later. So it's like being a little time capsule that's been buried. And there it was again in these photos. Elizabeth Coolass, welcome to Days Like These on RN. Today on the show, reporter Jake Morecambe takes us on a treacherous mountain climb as two friends set off on a journey to battle their way to the peak of Mount Cook. But life on the mountain is unpredictable, and when things take a dangerous turn, much is lost. That is, until melting snow unearths something that's been submerged for almost 25 years, and memories once buried make their way back to the surface. In 1997, Richard Stiles is working as a GP in the New South Wales town of Moree. But out of work hours... I've had a lifelong interest in outdoor adventure activities, sea kayaking and rock climbing and ocean swimming now. Surfing is a long-term passion, even though I'm not that good at it. But back then, it was mountain climbing that really hooked him. I'd been climbing in the Mount Cook, or Aorangi as it's known in Maori terms, region for quite a number of years. For Australian climbers, it's one of the closer, more challenging climbing areas. Richard's next climb was a glacier up Mount Cook. He'd stay at Empress Hut, a base for mountaineers, for a month, setting off on different routes around the mountain on what Richard says feels like the top of the world. But he couldn't do it solo. Climbing partnerships are interesting. They're a relationship where your life is very directly in the hands of another person. Richard partners up with his friend, Steve Robinson. I met Steve through a bunch of university friends. We're all a bunch of uni people. We used to go out and do trips all over the world and then we'd come back and have slide nights and show all our different trips. Steve was a very good climber, adventurer, uh, river paddler. Uh, Done some pretty serious rivers in South America. and So I knew he was a solid adventurer and he was a great guy. He was this incredibly positive just had a really good energy about him. If you find someone that you really gel with, it's a really solid, affirming experience, and that's what I felt with Steve. Richard and Steve are well aware of the risk they're taking. These aren't guided climbs up a mountain. There are no handrails, no stairs, no clear-cut paths. You're thrown into the middle of nowhere, heading up snowy, icy ground that is constantly moving beneath you, in extreme weather that can change in an instant. New Zealand is a dangerous place to climb. The mountains are steep. They have a lot of 
freeze and thaw cycles through them, which basically means more avalanches and rockfalls. In the months before the climb, Richard and Steve are preparing. It's going to be a long and tough journey, and they need to be ready. We were young. We were probably in our mid-20s and strong. I remember I was working in Moree and they had no hills, so I used to put a fully loaded backpack on and run up and down the stairwell in the hospital because that was the only uh, elevation I could find in the area. But not everyone was as excited about their upcoming climb. I'd done lots of pretty serious trips, but for some reason my mother, I think, rang up Steve's mother before we left and said, I've just got a bad feeling about this trip. I think one of them might not come back. And there had been apparently reports of the weather being a bit more unstable than usual. But this didn't stop them. So Richard and Steve make their way to Mount Cook. When you go climbing in Mount Cook National Park, you start off at the Mount Cook Village. It's pretty spectacular. You look up at the southern aspect of Mount Cook. The mountains are sharp and steep. On the sunny days, you have this brilliant blue sky with these sharp white peaks with rock streaks going down them. So we were carrying about 35 to 40 kilo packs with a month's worth of food and all our climbing gear. So you have ropes, a whole bunch of technical protection equipment, ice axes and sleeping gear, stoves. Each step required physical control because you've got to balance across the glacier. I remember I was listening to uh, one of my favourite bands, REM, New Adventures in Hi-Fi, and I played that album over and over again. You make your way up through the tussock grass and you're crossing creeks, hopping across boulders, and then you go up onto the side of the glacier and walk up what's called a glacial moraine. And then at some stage you've got to go onto the glacier where you may or may not have to put on your crampons so you don't slip down the ice. Crampons are like claws you wear on your feet. They're made out of steel and you attach them to your hiking boots to kick into the ice to stop you from slipping. You're often picking your way between crevasses, which are cracks in the glacier that can sometimes go down God knows how deep. You don't want to fall down them. And you're just picking your way around these crevasses and seracs, the big ice blocks that form as glaciers crack and move. They make it to Empress Hut. From there, they'd set out on an overnight climb up the Sheila Face. Sheila Face hangs right over Empress Hut, and it's this big wall of rock, rock, ice, snow. It's imposing, and the face goes straight up to the summit. It's about one and a half vertical kilometres of mixed rock, snow and ice climbing. They're planning to hike to the summit of the Sheila Face tomorrow. The climb will take two days, with one night camping along the way. With climbing, you often start early when the conditions are cold, so often you're getting up at midnight. You're trying to have your breakfast in the middle of the night, 
when you know there's this big thing outside that's waiting for you and it's really hard to eat your breakfast. You just, you're scared and you're just trying to shove the muesli down into your stomach uh, that doesn't really want to accept it. You get all your gear on, you go out. Usually it's, you pick stable conditions to do this stuff. So it's quiet, dark, and you've got your head torch on and you're just picking your way through the glacier under your torchlight with all the little crystals sparkling under your torch. Mostly quiet with your partner at that stage, just thinking about what's, what's coming. I think we got to the base at about four in the morning and then slowly as you start to get up onto the mountain, the sun starts coming up. And for me, that's the stage where it all really starts to come alive. You're surrounded by these incredibly spectacular, steep topography, you know, with snow gullies and ice cliffs. And as the sun first comes up, as it starts to go pink and purple, and then you'll get a little bit of a, a touch of the first light on some of the nearby mountains. And, it's magical up there. They hike all day, enjoy the views from so high up. And as the day begins to fade, they've been climbing intensely for 15 hours. Probably the biggest mountaineering day I had done. And I remember Steve turned to me and said, look, I know a lot of climbers, but I'm really glad that I'm doing this climb with you. We set up bivouac at the top at about seven at night. A bivouac is where you have a, like a little impromptu camp. So this is on the side of a mountain. It's not exactly a tent site. We were planning on digging a trench. We were both going to get into this bivy sack and sleep next to each other to keep warm. But the top of Mount Cook at that time of year, it was just plate ice, so we couldn't dig a trench. We just had to sit on the side of the mountain. I think it's the coldest night I've ever had. I remember we put on all our clothes and just feeling the cold seeping in through the clothes, shivering on the side of the mountain all night, looking down at these farmers' huts on the west coast, thinking about their little warm fires that they're sitting in while you're freezing yourself up on the top. That was a hard night. It was probably about three o'clock in the morning and we just couldn't see any point just sitting there freezing. So we started off going along the summit ridge of Cook towards the middle peak. The only problem was the conditions across it were unbelievably awful. It was sugar soft snow that you'd sink into your thighs and it was terrifying. You felt like any step you were going to slide down the, the mountain. They battle on, walking through darkness, and eventually, they make it to the summit. We got up to the middle peak, and it was just coming on to dawn, and we were elated. We were tired, but really happy. When you look out from any of those high ridges in Mount Cook, it's just this sea of mountains really there's just sharp peaks everywhere and obviously Mount Cook being the highest you're looking down on everything and it's like 
you're walking along the top of the earth. This is it, the summit of the Sheila face, one of the most hazardous routes on the mountain. Now, they just need to get back down. We went down off the middle peak and we were probably maybe three or 400 metres down and you've got to cross under a, a band of ice cliffs. And we were just on the edge of the ice cliffs having a little bit of a break. We had our backpacks off, ice tools off, and we were just having something to eat and drink. And I just looked up and I saw this huge block of ice just breaking off above me, about the size of maybe a four-storey apartment block. I turned around and I just ran diagonally down this 50-degree gully, and you, you never run down something that steep. I'm not claiming to be Usain Bolt, but I think in about three seconds I made about 100 metres. You're running down the slope and each step is about 10 metres long. You're sort of half falling, half running across to try and get on the edge of the avalanche cone. So this block of ice broke off and then it hit the slope above us and just... metre squared blocks of solid ice that are coming down at terminal velocity. A few of them go in front of me, but somehow they miss me, and then there's a big blast of wind that comes in front of it. I just got knocked off my feet by the wind tumbling down the slope. I had to go face first with my crampons above me to dig them into the ice to stop but they gripped the ice and then flipped me over backwards. And I just knew there were these big things called bergschrunds, these big crevasses at the bottom of this Empress ice shelf, and I didn't want to go down one of those. And then I'd stopped, turned around and everything was quiet. Called out for Steve. Uh, there was no reply. As an experienced mountain climber, Richard knows he doesn't have long. You've got a few minutes sometimes to find them because after that they get suffocated. He also knows that the risk of another avalanche happening is high. So he moves fast, calling out for Steve, picking through the ice trying to find any trace of him. After, I don't know how long it was, 15, 30 minutes of looking around, I called it quits and just turned around and started heading back to the hut, knowing that I'd lost my friend. I was crying as I was going down, um, as I am now. You're just doing what you got to do. I needed to get back to safety. And I only had a snow stake and I had a sprained ankle, so, and there was still a lot of climbing to do to get back to the hut. So it was quite, you know, it was, that was challenging to be down climbing little ice cliffs. I got through that and somehow got back to the hut. And then you can call back to the village and, so there's been a, an incident and they 
come and with helicopters and bring you back to the hut. I remember I was just outside the National Park office while they were going through their search and rescue debrief and hearing them talking through the technical details of what they were searching for uh, in a helicopter seemed, well for me I'd lost a friend but for them they were looking for a body. I needed to call Steve's mum and let her know the news. Initially when I started telling her the details she just couldn't really take it in so she just asked me to call her back in an hour so I just walked around the village for an hour and then called her back. Richard returns to Australia, still trying to process what he's just been through. He fails a uni exam, is triggered by scenes in action movies, and he's still a young guy. So it was a hard time. I got on with my life and did, I guess, what we do with getting on with your job and had a family and I haven't done any serious mountaineering since then. I've done other sorts of adventures, sea kayaking and rock climbing, and but uh, I haven't gone back to the mountains. I guess I thought I'd got lucky. It could have very easily been me, dead, and Steve that had survived. I left that event to some degree in a back room. I hadn't been thinking about it on a day-to-day level. But just a few months ago, all of that changes when Richard gets a call from his old climbing buddy, Mike. Mike called me and said they found your backpack with your camera in it and all these photos. It turns out there'd been a year-long search to find Richard. About a year ago, near Pudding Rock at Gardner Hut, Chris Hill, who was the climber who found it, found the broken camera in it. The backpack must have come slowly down off the Empress Ice Shelf. The film was highly damaged, but there were still salvageable pictures. Chris develops the film. So he had these pictures of mountains and people climbing, and there's one of three young men sitting on the balcony of Empress Hut. Another one of the sort of long-haired guys sitting on the, the balcony ledge. Chris then starts trying to track down whose camera it was and who the people are in the photos. He goes to the authorities in New Zealand and reaches out to people from the Mount Cook National Park. The National Park guys couldn't, you know, exactly place them. So I guess in the modern era, he was able to put them out onto social media sites. Chris posts the photos to a few New Zealand climbing pages. The New Zealand climbers were able to work out what route the climbers were doing. They could work out roughly what era. By some of the alterations on Empress Hut, they knew when the new balcony had been put in. The New Zealand climbers also noticed the men are wearing Australian clothing brands. So they post the images to a few Aussie climbing pages. There, someone recognises a guy in one of the photos. It's Mike Dunlop, Richard's mate who was climbing Mount Cook at the same time as he and Steve. And Mike said, they're Richard's photos. 
So, um, yeah, it was just kind of discombobulating and it, it was just this kind of weird altered reality, like that part of my life is back here again. It's not like I didn't want it to be back here again, but I just wasn't expecting it to kind of, in a way, come to life again. They're the shots I took 24 years ago. So it's like being a little time capsule that's been buried. This backpack that got buried in a glacier, but there it was again in these photos. And they're kind of cool photos because they're all kind of damaged on the edge and it's just kind of got this old look about it. And there's one shot of Steve sitting there. He's the long-haired guy sitting on the balcony. And certainly the shots on the Sheila face that I took were definitely the last shots that were taken of him. And so, particularly for the family, you hang on to what you can for someone who's gone. And they still miss him. You know, Chrissy's sister still goes down to Bells Beach on a little bit of an annual pilgrimage, which is where Steve liked to surf. He was a solar physicist. Uh, he was working at the University of New South Wales Solar Physics Research Unit, which I think may still, but certainly back then, was a world-leading solar physics unit. He was an early person who could see the coming impacts of climate change, and he had a big social conscience. It felt particularly sad for me to lose a friend who was just on the cusp of offering the world a lot of other I guess what you would call publicly useful things. He was a very positive person, always had a big smile. Yeah, he, he carried himself well in life. You know, I miss him. There was a really nice poem that one of my friends sent to me. And maybe I'll read it out. It's called Separation by W.S. Merwin. <clears throat> Your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Um, when you lose someone who is really important to you, that alters your experience of reality going forward. Everything I do is stitched with its color, so you carry that with you. And it's the people that love you who are left behind who have that needle that is stitched through them that alters the color of their experience. I think that's probably the, the harder part of someone going. So I think particularly for the family, the slides now are with them. Yeah, I think that's a moving experience for them to have those. It's like maybe having a little piece of something more of Steve in their lives. Thanks for listening to Days Like These. Today's story was reported by Jake Morecambe and it was made on the lands of the Gadigal, Bidjigal and Wiradjuri Woiwurrung people. If you've got a story that you'd like to share with us, you can email us, dayslikethese at abc.net.au. 
And if you're looking for more days like these, you can find the entire back catalogue of episodes on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. See you next time. I'm Andy Matthews. And I'm Alistair Trombley-Birchall. And we're here to remind you that The Pop Test, that comedy science quiz show from Radio National, is back. Each week we pick a science topic and ask comedians and scientists important questions like... Why might you stir your tea at 28,000 RPM? Where on earth does time travel the slowest? And what's so suspicious about being left-handed? With guests Sean McAuliffe, Claire Hooper, Cal Wilson, Dr Alan Duffy and Sammy Shah. The Pop Test. Hear it now on the ABC Listen app or almost anywhere you get your podcasts. 